I'm going to ask you to stand with me uh, and turn in the Word of God to Acts 19. Acts 19. And uh, we'll be examining this morning verses 8 through 20. Here's the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them. And he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So this took place for about two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried away from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish high priest or chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many of those who had believed, kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and they found it. 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. You may be seated. Well, there's a popular website that tells stories of people who experienced miraculous restoration. There's a story of a man named Jeff, for example. Jeff had throat cancer, and Jeff had lost 50 pounds. He had gone to all the doctors and received all of the treatment that he could receive, and he was told that he was going to die. And Jeff uh, acted on faith, and he sent uh, money to a particular pastor and asked him to pray over a prayer cloth and send it to him, which the pastor did. And then he slept with the prayer cloth uh, on his throat, and he was miraculously healed. Then there's the story of a man named David, who was $64,000 in debt and had no way to get out of it and was ready to declare bankruptcy, and he... uh, sowed seeds of faith, that is, he gave the last cash he had to this particular preacher who prayed over him, sent him a prayer cloth, and eventually he went to his mailbox and he found a letter there saying that the debt had been canceled. You can find more stories like this on this particular website, and if you went to it, you would find that this is what it says in its opening sentence. 
Countless individuals have received miracles over the years through anointing resident and a prayer cloth. It's the catalyst that releases God's transforming power into your life. And it's the key to financial or physical healing or supernatural blessing. So where do you suppose uh, this pastor went to to ground his practice? Well, right here in the Word of God, Acts 19.12, the website says, Paul touched handkerchiefs and aprons and evil spirits went out. A simple piece of cloth can work the same way for you. See, the Word of God is used now as the warrant for ripping people off. All kinds of spiritual scammers, rip-off artists, pastoral entrepreneurs prey on the desperate and the uninstructed with passages just like this. And yet you may protest to me this morning, well, Pastor John, it's in the, it's in the Word of God. And so I would say as we begin to think our way through passages like this is to ask good questions. And one of the good questions you could ask of this text this morning is this text really in the Word of God to teach people to seek out anointed prayer cloths? Is that why it's here? Is this text here to ask the needy and the desperate and the sick and those who are broken by life, sin, and its circumstances to sow seeds of faith by scraping up the last few dollars they have and giving it to a pastor so he can pray over a cloth and send it back. Well, I don't find any of that in the Word of God here this morning, so obviously that part's being made up. But there's another way to penetrate this text and begin to understand that it has nothing to do with prayer claws or sowing seeds of faith and giving away your last money to a very wealthy televangelist preacher so he can fly around the world on private jets. And the easiest way to get into this text is simply ask, well, what is in the brackets? What is in the brackets here in this text which leads us away from the sensational to the ordinary? And I would submit to you that the brackets around this text are critical for properly understanding it. Verse 10, you see here a reference to the Word of God. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the Word of the Lord. And there's another bracket. It's the end of our text in verse 20 where you have the summary line, the testimony, the substance of what Luke is seeking to communicate here. And so... The Word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. There is the key to this text. Luke's own summary. And the thing that Luke wants to highlight and spotlight is the growth of the Word. But not just the growth of the Word, but the explosive growth of the Word. This word mightily here is a very forceful word in Greek. And we can gather a sense of how forceful it is in that normally, typically, in almost all the uses of it in the New Testament, always is a word used to describe the power of God. Never applied to man in any way. And so Luke takes that word and he connects it to not only growing, but to the second term in the text, prevailing, to communicate with great force that the word of God was growing powerfully. It was prevailing powerfully. So that's one of the things that you can look to here to see that uh, Luke is up to something different than uh, providing warrant or justification for a preacher to start anointing prayer cloths. 
But what's inside the brackets? That's something else that's important to uh, Luke's overall perspective. He, he's talked about the word growing and, and a necessary condition for that is it's being preached. But there's something else here that's inside the brackets which begins to help us understand. And the thing that I would have you know, and I tried to accent it in my reading of the text this morning, is the very first word in verse 20. So... You see, that word speaks of manner. It's providing an account. It's descriptive. It's seeking to help us understand this mightily growing and mightily prevailing word. How did it happen? Why is it happening? Well, because of what we just read about in the prior verses, the penitence of the church. The penitence of the church is inseparably connected to the growing work. And so what's interesting about that is its placement. Inside this bracket, you have the testimony to God's miracles. And then after that, you have the testimony to the counterfeit attempt at miracles. And the result of all of it was great fear came upon the people of God. And the result of that is that they begin to confess their sin and bring forth the fruit of repentance for sin. And what happened? Well, the Word of God grew explosively. We begin to read this whole text and its context and the flow and sequence of ideas. It's very clear this morning. It provides no justification for pastoral entrepreneurs setting up a prayer rag anointing business and ripping people off who are desperate. What this text is about is teaching the church how the Word of God grows explosively. It does that through the true preaching of the Word and true penitence by the people of God. That's the main point of our text. The Word grows explosively as the Word is, true, is preached truly and as the people of God bring forth true repentance for sin. So we have just two parts to our message this morning. The ministry of the Word is a means to the growing Word. And then we're going to think about the conditions of the growing Word, which is true repentance. So let's think about the ministry of the Word as a means to the growing of the Word. And uh, what we have in verses 8 through 10 is testimony, twofold testimony of, of the Word being preached truly. Notice uh, verses 8 and 9, you have the picture of Paul preaching in the synagogue. It says, he was reasoning in the synagogue. We don't have to spend a lot of time here. I want us to think about a few things. First of all, place. Here's Paul back to doing what Paul does, right? He goes uh, on his missionary journeys and, and he goes to the synagogue, being a Jew with a heart for fellow Jews. In fact, the apostle said, and it's a staggering statement in Romans chapter 9, he wishes he were cut off from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh. He had such a deep, visceral, passionate love for fellow Jewish people that he says, I would, I would suffer being cut off from Christ if I could win them. It's that kind of a heart for his people that led him into those synagogues after he had been so routinely treated with contempt. But he still goes back. And notice the substance of his preaching. We're told here that he was reasoning and preaching with him about the kingdom of God. That's just a summary way of talking about the gospel. It's a summary way of, of speaking about the hope of Israel. And the hope of the people of God going back to the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 
was that this great champion, this great warrior, this great seed of the promise would emerge from the woman, from Eve, and he would conquer the spiritual enemies of the church. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. A great coming, conquering Savior through whom the people of God receive every single spiritual blessing ever needed. That's what Paul was going to the synagogue teaching about. Paul was going into the synagogue reminding these Jews about those Bible verses they had learned on their mama's knee and saying, we no longer look forward in hope. It's here. Jesus is the Christ. He is the great coming King. He is the priest. He is the prophet. He is the fulfillment of all that God promised. We don't look forward in hope, we look back. He was leading them unto Jesus and to the cross. And so he had a powerful ministry telling them that uh, the promises of God were made yes and true and certified in Christ. And I want you to notice the way that he did it. Paul, or rather Luke, goes out of his way to highlight the manner of Paul's preaching, as he said, he was speaking out boldly. He was reasoning and he was persuading. Each of the elements there is important for us to consider this notion of true ministry as a, as a means of, of God causing the Word to grow explosively. You see, because he went into the synagogue with boldness. He didn't go in contemptuousness uh, as if he was wringing his hands and had uh, uh, sweaty palms and forehead concerned that the word just wouldn't be received adequately. Even though every single synagogue he'd ever appeared in before that, he'd been bounced out of. The Apostle Paul went into these Jews with love in his heart, a burning zeal for Jesus Christ, and with boldness. And he spoke the word firmly. And notice also that he reasoned from the Word of God. In other words, that means he took to the text of Scripture. He went to the promises. He went to the prophecies. He went to the histories. He went to the Psalms. He went to the whole of Scripture. And he drew out propositions. He drew out statements. He brought forth doctrine. And he reasoned from the Word of God with them to explain the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. But there's something else that's added to this, which is all part of the kind of preaching that God uses, because you're told not just that He preached with boldness, not just that He used logic, He persuaded. See that? There's a difference. There's a difference between reasoning with somebody. There's a difference between just simply expounding something and explaining it in a, in a logical, sequential, orderly, clear way. But you see, Paul went beyond that. He sought to persuade them. He sought to bring them into the faith. He sought to bring them into the kingdom of God by saying, these things which he preached are not just things to sit and think about. They're things to act upon. They're things to be believed. People of God, I would propose to you this morning that part of the way the, the kingdom of God grows and part of the way the word grows mightily and prevails mightily is when the gospel is preached truly. That's part of what 
Luke wants to communicate. The explosive growth of the Word wasn't just that the Word was set out there in any old fashion. No, it was proclaimed in a way that is fitting of the majesty and the grace of the Gospel and the glory of the Savior. And so he preached in the synagogue and notice you can see that it didn't go well. Early on, he uh, received a good he had a good reception, but notice that the preaching led to provocation and withdrawal, and this is important to the unfolding of the story of explosive growth. Because you come into verse 9, you can see here, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way he withdrew. So the preaching led to provocation. Notice the disposition of those who heard the Word of God, and it's, it's lamentable and it's sad. We're told that they became hardened and disobedient. Think about being hardened to this. And by the way, the verb means they hardened themselves. It's reflexive. As they heard the Word, as they absorbed it, and as they took it in, they made their hearts hard. See, how could that be? These are Jews. They had learned from childhood the Scriptures. They had learned to look for the Christ to come. And and as Paul set forth Christ so eloquently and adequately and convincingly from the Word of God, the thing that troubles you when you hear this is that the very people who set their hope upon this Christ are hardened and they reject Him. How does this happen? Calvin has a quote here that's somewhat interesting to us. He says, this is just the nature of heavenly doctrine. It has the power to make hearts hard. But then he backs off that statement. I was grateful for it. He says, that's not due to the nature of the word. It's accidental. He's using accidental in a philosophical way, of course. But but what he's saying is, it's it's not of the nature of the Word to make hearts hard. It's the nature of the Word to make hearts whole, to reconcile, to heal them, to bless them, to change them, to renew them. So how is it then that this saving message of Jesus Christ makes them hard? And the answer is because it's the nature of the Gospel in some ways. Fallen people, when they hear the message of God's grace and that being saved has nothing to do with their own efforts, when the Word of God doesn't come as a means of flattering them and telling them there's some work for them to perform, something they can do. In fact, it says the situation is so bad, you're so destitute, and you're so blind, and you're so helpless, and you're so incapable, you can't even lift a finger. That's when people, in their pride... It wells up within them on account of sin, begin to disrespect the Word. And that's exactly what happened here. They heard it. They became hardened. And they became disobedient. And notice it says they reviled. That means they blasphemed. They spoke evil of Christ and the Word of God, the Christian faith, and the believers. And so the ministry was undermined. And therefore, due to the provocation, Paul withdraws. There's two words here that Luke uses to to describe what happened here. It says, he withdrew. 
speaking uh, evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. In other words, it suggests to us that Paul is doing two things. He's distinguishing and he's separating. Because that first word, withdraw, means abandon. He abandoned the synagogue. The reason he abandoned the synagogue is because the synagogue had abandoned Christ. It had pews full of Bibles. But for them, Christ wasn't in that word. They had elements of worship which we could agree with. Prayer and the singing of psalms and things that were right. Perhaps even confession of sin and reading of the law. But there wasn't any Christ in it. And so he abandoned it. He drew a line of separation between the synagogue and this emerging seedling of a church plant. And second of all, he separated. He took away. That's what the word means. It took away. He separated the believers from it so that they would not be undermined in their faith. But there's a silver lining in it. Because as you read on to verse 9, you see that Paul just simply transitioned and replaced one for the other here. He began reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. What you could see here is he had an extensive ministry. The venue was different. It's no longer in a synagogue. It's in the lecture hall, literally, of Tyrannus. And it likely means that Tyrannus either owned that place or he was the philosopher who was identified with it. But there was a great opportunity here for the apostle. He could reason daily. We're told here that he hunkered down there. He lasted two years there. And the scope of the ministry is, um, is breathtaking. And to behold, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks. And so the venue change was for a great purpose. It had a great result. The word was no longer confined to the synagogue, but now it's exploding forth from the boundaries of Judaism into the whole of the city of Ephesus and beyond. And it was a fruitful ministry. For two years, people were able to come and center the word of God. Jews and Greeks, people from Ephesus, from the hillsides and the country and from the surrounding towns, all of these people now seem to be streaming into this lecture hall, or at least the word went flooding out. But the result is, as you see in the summary statement, which prepares for that climactic one in verse 20, the word of God was being proclaimed. And as it was being proclaimed, the Lord blessed it and caused it to grow mightily and to multiply. That's your first bracket. That's the necessary condition for the growth of the word. But that leads us now into what seems to really have been the heart of this text here and communicates for us the substance of what Luke wants to say to us here this morning. And that brings us into our second point, which is the conditions for the growing word. The conditions for the growing word. And, and here we have the very engaging, dramatic, colorful story of miracles and fake exorcisms. And that Luke is engaged in a topic change is quite obvious to us because the very first word in verse 11, the original, is miracles. 
But he is intending for us to take both of these things together because there's a tiny little word there in the original which means that he is binding both narratives together. In other words, this little particle in the Greek is suggesting that you have on the one hand this picture of the word going out while he's in the school of Tyrannus, daily reasoning and preaching and and expounding the things of the word of God. And while all that's happening, Luke says, let's focus in now on a singular incident at that time and place which accompanied the ministry of the Word and leads us into the summary statement and conclusion of verse 20. And the scene change is obvious because you have the miracles here. The Word of God says they were extraordinary miracles. We notice also that they were mediated miracles because as much as uh, the word goes out of its way to say that it was God performing them, I want you to notice the prepositional phrase, by the hands of Paul. We could think for a moment why this is happening here. We're going to see the extraordinary nature of them in verse 12, but perhaps one of the reasons why it was happening here in Ephesus is because it was a city known for its commitment for the occult. It was a city known for its relationship to black magic and to soothsaying and magicians and sorcerers and things of that. In fact, uh, we've dug up um, correspondence from antiquity about this era that is full of accounts for how this city was given over uh, to sorcery and black magic. Spells and incantations and hymns and prayers and all kinds of stuff which shows just how much it was a part of the culture of the city. So one way uh, for the Lord to gain a footing for the Word was to set in contrast the real from the fake. One way to show the reality of the truth is to show that when divine power is unleashed, it makes magic pale in comparison. That gets us into where we're going to go, but I'm just saying that at the outset here, for us to consider why we have this testimony here, and also to tie it into the note here, it was God doing it, but He did it through the hands of Paul suggesting to us He's seeking to confirm the Word that Paul preached, to authenticate His messenger. But surely the testimony of the miraculous is dramatic, right? I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? Handkerchiefs and aprons that were next to his body are being carried away by people who are listening to Paul preach and they end up healing people. Not a word is spoken. Think of that. Not a word is spoken. Hands aren't being laid upon anyone. These uh, things next to his skin somehow by God's power mediated such force that the people who are suffering and diseased and sick and um, possessed by demonic spirits were healed. I do want us to note the connection between the diseases being healed and the spirit, uh, evil spirits leaving them. The, the conjunction and suggests there must have been that connection there because we're told that as the handkerchiefs and aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, The diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Perhaps the illnesses described here are the effects of 
the demonic possession and the city being riddled, as it were, with the dark arts and in this great grip and stranglehold of Satan. Clearly what follows next would indicate to us that's the sense of maybe how we should read this through this failed attempt at exorcism. But obviously, this made people sit up and take note. Obviously, the people of Ephesus were seeing some great power at work through Paul as they heard him preach and people were being saved. We'll note that towards the end of our paragraph here. But uh, it also created a sort of rivalry. You see, we've seen the testimony of the miraculous, and and now we have the testimony of the frauds. Because no sooner do we read about this very spectacular and marvelous set of circumstances of this healing through Paul's handkerchiefs, now comes into the narrative the fraudulent exorcists. And... uh, the way we should read this is about fraud being perpetrated. But, but let's think about it. These are introduced to us in verse 13. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So let's think about this. These are Jews, but their very way they're behaving feels sort of un-Jewish to us. Obviously, they are part of the establishment from Jerusalem. Their father being a part of the chief priest, that means they're a part of the priestly aristocracy. Why are they in Ephesus? I have no idea. It's a long ways away from home. But as they see Paul preach, it's as if they are stirred and moved by a dark impulse to, to counteract his effectual ministry. I think that's how we read this. They can see the word uh, working powerfully and mightily. They can see souls won to Christ. They can see some of their fellow Jewish people coming to name the name of Christ and, and find life and salvation in Him. They can see the obvious nature of the miracles and how they are working powerfully. And so the suggestion here is this is rivalry. They're the seven sons of Sceva, which makes it already feel they're a bit notorious somehow, even though we know nothing else of them. But the means they use is typical. Notice here that Luke spotlights this two times. They were using the name of Jesus. Uh, the picture here in summary is that they named the name of Jesus and then later on you're told here, I abjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so the way you can know that this is fraudulent and counterfeit is the very way they go about the miraculous healing or uh, extraction of the demonic. Because this is how Jews would have done it. This is how even the uh, pagan sorcerers would have done it. They would have located power in a name. This is all part of the incantations and spells and formulas of antiquity. The notion that there is power associated with a name. And so you bottle up that power and you unleash it on people as you pronounce the name over them. If you go back and read uh, contemporary documents, Josephus, the great Jewish historian of this era, uh, offers us cases where notorious Jewish exorcists would engage in this kind of activity. 
but you know it's fraudulent because of how Christ exercised. It's a great example of this in Mark chapter 1. Paul was preaching, in, or rather Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, and it was quite spellbinding and captivating because the Jewish audience were saying, he speaks as one who has authority, and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. But at some moment in his preaching, a man that was possessed with a demonic spirit began to shriek and cry out and act like a misfit. And so Mark slows down the image and he, and he very carefully records for us the words of Jesus. And Jesus, without even skipping a beat in his sermon, simply looked at the demon-possessed man and said, I rebuke you, come out! No names, no formulas, no incantations, just authoritative command. As we think about that, we begin to discern that there is a contrast being set up by Luke here. He's already testified to the miraculous power of God being channeled and mediated through the very hands of Paul who wasn't saying anything or speaking any formulas into existence. He didn't even lay hands on anybody. Simply clothes, uh, ordinary clothes were being taken from him and people were being healed and demonic spirits uh, were being cast out. But here you have this whole rigmarole, this whole magic thing going on. And so they speak and pronounce the name of Jesus, a name that they don't even regard as having any authority or meaning to them. It's in the quotes, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They're not even casually acquainted with him. The whole description shows us the problem. The whole description here is designed to show us that they have a worldview based upon magic. We think about that and argue, and it sounds ludicrous to us, I suppose. Although I would take notice that more and more of this occultic New Age stuff is seeping into pop literature, and people talk about it and think about it in this way. But there's whole swaths of populations in the world today that believe this still. It's not too prevalent here in America. But if you, you just use the right words, or you, you can manipulate reality. That's what they're doing. It's a magic-based view of the world. It's completely unlike the miracle-based view of God with a sovereign, awesome, divine power just breaking through and penetrating this world based upon His sovereignty. No, this is very different. This is men imagining their own ways of changing the world based upon their own words and formulas and ceremonies. And so here you have this case of the exorcist competing with the growth of the kingdom of God, trying to hold people back in darkness to the use of spells and incantation. And that's where the story makes a humorous turn. Because as they're pronouncing this, as they're, they're going through the rigmarole and the ceremony and the formulaic expression, notice verse 15. They went into this man's house. It's obviously a house because you're told later they ran out of it. So they sought this person out for whatever reason. We're not told. And they begin to go through the ceremony of pronouncing the name and notice the response of the evil spirit residing 
in this individual. We're told in verse 15, he answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? And what's so fascinating for us in the original is Luke has preserved for us must, uh, what must have been the emphasis because it says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, you I don't know. You see, these people attempt to perpetrate fraud on this poor demon-possessed man and the demonic spirit within him even knows more than they do. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but you people who are simply playing games with my name or the name of the Lord, I don't know. And so then, verse 16, this man in whom the evil spirit, he leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now there is some humor in it because of the wreck or the ruin that he left these seven sons of Sceva in. The other is fearful for us because we consider and contemplate the power of darkness. It's nothing to be trifled with. This man is left battered and bruised and beaten. These seven sons are left naked and mauled like they had run into a junkyard dog. They failed. Before we move on to see the fear of the Lord, I suppose it's worth saying at this point that people of God, we don't deal with the demonic this way. I see all kinds of um, headlines about people engaging in exorcism and all of it. This is not how Christians deal with the demonic. We are not given a manual or a set of instructions in the Word of God for casting out demons, yet we are given very specific advice. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. James chapter 4 says, Resist him firm in faith. We believe in the demonic. We know it's there. We know it's terrifying. We know it's dangerous. We know it damages people. And that's precisely why we don't reduce the demonic to something so simplistic that we can sprinkle a little water over and conjure out of people. We declare. We declare the name of Christ. We declare the truth of the gospel. We set men free from this bondage by the proclamation of the gospel, by telling people to flee to Christ as a refuge. We don't deal with it with formulas because it's far too powerful. It's beyond our strength. We trust that the Lord will take His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit cause that Word to penetrate the hearts of those who hosts such wickedness. But now notice how the scene shifts and Luke pivots away from the details of what really feels spectacular to something that's quite ordinary but significant. The fear of the Lord produced true repentance. Now we're into that necessary, now an essential condition for the Word to grow mightily. Because the whole point has been to contrast the miraculous 
with the magic in order to generate the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And now look at this. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Well, the pronoun this is very obviously saying, hey, look back to what we just said here about the mauling of the seven sons of Sceva by this demonically possessed man. And the... the, uh, contrasting picture of the the triumph of the power of God's sovereignty in affecting real miracles. That whole complex of events you just thought about there, verses 11 through 16, that's what Luke is saying. This looks back to that. And the thing that happened is the, the message of it spread like wildfire. It's interesting to us because it happened in a private place. It happened in a house. And yet somehow, the knowledge, the testimony, the narrative of it all, with even the truth commingled with it, began to spread. People were able now, who never probably even heard of the name Jesus before in Ephesus, heard this story, and they heard about the contrasting power at work, how the handkerchiefs that had been close to the skin of Paul were sent out and used effectively uh, to exorcise people of evil spirits. And on the other hand, the fraudulent magicians who had trained in the craft of Ephesus were exposed of being weak and ineffectual. People were able to perceive two different powers are at work. You have the power of God, and then you had the feeble power of men. And the result, which couldn't be denied, which couldn't be argued against, well, it caused what? Verse 17, fear fell upon them all. And that name of Jesus Christ, which was dragged into the dirt by those Jewish exorcists, was now lifted up and placed on a pedestal on high, and it was being magnified because people now perceived the difference between the power of fraudulence and the power that God exercises when He unleashes His sovereign power for good. And the whole region fell under the fear of the Lord, and this fear of the Lord produced real repentance. And that brings us what is really into the heart of the narrative now in verse 18. And I want you to look very carefully at your text and do a little grammar with me this morning because it's the key to understanding this narrative. Many of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. I hope you remember the past perfect. Do you all remember that from your grammar lessons? The past perfect. Because this narrative is not telling you that when people heard about the exorcism that failed versus the exorcism that prevailed in the power of God, it's not telling you those people to whom that was news now are coming to faith. The past perfect is telling you that people who already believed in Jesus Christ, who'd already been saved by the blood of Christ, who already believed in the miracles of Christ, now, having seen the contrast, came and repented. 
And it says very specifically what they repented of, their practices. In other words, what Luke is telling you is that those who were from Ephesus, who had already believed in Christ, didn't leave magic behind. It means that these who had named the name of Christ and believed in Him unto salvation were still mired in the sins of their past. They had already come to faith. They just hadn't left their sins behind. They had not left that which in their culture prevailed over them through so much repetition, so much interaction with, so much commitment to. They had certainly confessed some of their sins and repented of some of their sins, but but there's a whole new level of awareness of what sin is and repentance is. So notice here the doubling down on the verbal aspect of repentance. We're told that they came confessing and disclosing. Confessing and disclosing. In other words, they came and they spelled out their sins. And they were very specific about what they had failed in. And at this point, I always remind us of that that wonderful little phrase in the Westminster Confession that we are to confess of particular sins particularly. And the reason for it is because if we don't bring our sins, particular sins before the Lord with honesty and transparency, we don't even know what kind of grace from God we are seeking. We don't know what kind of change or renewal we need. It's only by being consciously aware of our sin and knowing precisely how the grace of Christ is adequate for it, that we have any chance for real change. If you are confessing your sin in the same way you pray for your food, you don't know what you need from Christ. And you won't experience any change. These people here, having come under the fear of the Lord as they beheld this spectacular and awesome contrast between the power of the miraculous, which is divine, and the fraudulent power of magic, perceived their problem. They weren't trusting in the Lord. They weren't committing their life fully to Christ. They were seeking a refuge in the dark arts and magic and spell and incantation. And in man-made devices. And what they perceived is that the power of God is so much more majestic. But more than that, they began to be grateful for it, that it was theirs. There's no mistake that Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians 6. When he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And then goes into a detailed discussion about spiritual warfare to the Ephesians because it was a church in a culture that was awash in the particular sin. And so they saw the fraudulence. They saw their own sin. And they confessed it. But they did something more. 
They brought forth tangible fruit of repentance in verse 19. And many of those who had practiced magic, they brought their books together and they began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and they found it 50,000 pieces of silver. You see, they brought forth the things, the magical books, which they had been relying upon as their refuge. They brought before the rest of the people things which they had been relying upon and going back to and that were causing them to be ensnared in sinful practice. The application of this in the 70s and 80s was people used to burn their rock and roll records. You're too young to remember that, I suppose. No one's smiling at that. Everybody used to, when they went to revival, got all the records they had in their closet, and they threw them on stacks and they burned them. I'm not sure that's the application. But at least here you can see the things that had ensnared them spiritually. They're bringing forth and they're burning them. And by the way, it represented piles of cash. It was costly repentance. See that? The price of it was 50,000 pieces of silver. And there's all kinds of computations of what that means in modern money. But let me just say it's a lot. Imagine you could figure out that 50,000 pieces of silver is a lot of cash. It was costly repentance. But it was tangible. They didn't want to go back to be enslaved anymore to the things that were entangling them spiritually. So they cut it out of their life. And they repented sincerely, truly, thoroughly, heart-wrenchingly, Honestly, transparently, publicly, openly. And the result is so. So, the Word of God was growing mightily. You see the connection of ideas? This text has nothing to do with anointed prayer clause for the desperate. It is a corruption of the use of this passage to think of that, what it's there for. The story of the prayer clause was simply a means to an end to generating the fear of the Lord and producing heartfelt repentance in the people of God. I don't ever want to make light of somebody's misery. And I always want to stand with those who are hoping against hope. I'm not against any of that. But surely in the name of Christ, we must do better for people than to offer them the stupidity of little clocks as if there's magic to be mediated through that. It's a gross abuse of the name of Christ. The heart of our text here is not what is sensational. The heart of our text here is the connection, the inseparable connection Luke forges between the ordinary and the ordinary. The ordinary is repentance, and the ordinary is the ministry of the Word, and the two coming together lead to this great result of the Word flourishing. In other words, what Luke does is draw a profound connection between the behavior of the church and the growth of the church. 
He draws a profound connection between the behavior of the church and the growth of the church. And what Luke is telling the church is the way we would see the Word of God grow in us and in our midst is through what's ordinary. The true preaching of the Word and true repentance. People of God, do you want the Word of God to come mightily in your life? Do you want the Word of God to prevail mightily in your life? And what that would mean is that we're growing in spiritual maturity. We're growing in conviction of the truth. We're, we're growing into being more Christ-like day by day. That the promises are more real to us. That the taste of Christ's grace is more savory to us. Yet there's real change happening in our life that we're not still the same person we were when we started out on our Christian walk. If we want the Word of God to come that way in our life, Luke is very clear about that happens. It happens through sincere repentance of sin. You see, we can add all the knowledge we want. We can read all the books we want. We can listen to all the podcasts we want. We can consult all the experts we would like. But there's no shortcut to growing in spiritual maturity. There's no shortcut to having the Word of God prevail and grow mightily in our life. It's this, that we are truly repentant Christians. Confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin, disclosing our sin to the Lord, and seeking its forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I do that this morning? Because I would hope that we all want the Word of God to grow mightily in us and prevail mightily in our life. I say, well, let's build on the analogy then in our text. The Ephesians that were referred to here are saved. They are believers. They had named the name of Christ. If they weren't fully trusting in Him or committing their care to Him, and so they were returning to the same old sins. And so the analogy is for us this morning, if we would learn to apply this text to our life for the flourishing of the Word in us, it's this. What sins do you keep going back to? What sins do you refuse to let go of? What sins do you keep treasuring? Well, I know this is the tough part, and you can't look at this point in the sermon and say, I hope so-and-so is listening right now. This would be good for them. It's hard for all of us to hear this. Because the level of honesty here is real. It's not phony. They were literally confessing things that were a real problem to them. Sins that were really ensnaring them spiritually and causing them to fall short of Christ in the way they should have. Topics like these make us uncomfortable. But the reality is Luke encodes it in the Word of God so that we learn to grow. We grow as we come under the fear of God. And the fear of God leads us to true repentance. And true repentance leads to the flourishing of the Word. What about us as a church? 
Do we want this as a church to flourish? We've applied it to us as individuals. Would we like the word to flourish in our life? Here it is. But what about us as a church? Do we want the word of God to flourish in our midst? Well, the model is set before us here how the church experiences this in its own midst. The growing mightily of the Word and the prevailing mightily of the Word. It happens as the church comes together and confesses its sin and is repentant. Our forefathers knew this of old. They were regularly at certain seasons gathering corporately to confess sin because they acknowledged it was part of why they were having difficulty in their life is they hadn't committed themselves to it. So this morning as a church, we hear this too for ourselves. We want the Word of God to flourish in our midst. It won't happen through shortcuts. It'll happen as we gather together and as we sincerely and wholeheartedly and communally confess our sin and bring forth the fruit of repentance. And we do that. The Lord's promise is sure. I leave us this morning with uh, both the duty and the promise as they're bound together in a great divine statement of old. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word when it brings before us things in the midst of the extraordinary. It causes what's ordinary to stand out to us. And what stands out this morning is not miracles or exorcisms or handkerchiefs causing demons to flee. What stands out to us as ordinary is the fear of the Lord leads to repentance. And genuine repentance leads to the prevailing power of the Word. God in heaven, would you work in us this morning a desire to see the Word of God uh, prevail mightily in our own lives and in your church? That we would long to see the gospel flourishing in our midst, lost souls being brought to Christ in our midst, seeing uh, your people grow in spiritual maturity and the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then as we have an appetite and a desire for those things, seal it upon our hearts and impress us and convince us of this and even convict us of it, it won't happen through shortcuts or through human means. It'll happen when we come into the fear of You, confess our sins and disclose them and bring forth the fruit of true repentance. Strengthen us to do that, Lord, that we may know Your blessing and obtain this great promise. I will hear them from heaven and I'll forgive their sin. Hear us for the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen.